Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Eat the Fat, Drink the Wine, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 21st, 2007. A few years ago, I received a letter from a friend in ministry who had endured considerable mental and spiritual anguish negotiating a divorce. Along with the emotional blowback that always follows, feelings of regret, sadness, anger, pain, confusion, depression, weight loss, and relief. But now, my friend wrote, he had met a woman he planned to marry. Now, he said, it was time to move beyond the failure, grief, and despair of the past to celebration, joy, and hope for the future. It was time, he said, quoting this week's Old Testament reading from Nehemiah chapter 8, to eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. My friend is no exception. A few weeks ago, my uncle wrote that his son tried to commit suicide with pills and alcohol. His email made me think about my circle of family and friends whom I love and the many devils that threaten to undo them. Hospitalization for clinical depression, obsessive compulsive disorders, obesity, brain tumors, suicide, vehicular manslaughter, teenage drinking disorders, cancer, involuntary, unemployment, and the death of a parent. If my small sample of disappointments, disasters, failures, and tragedy represents our baseline normal, then joy and rejoicing don't seem to follow. It raises the question, eat the fat, drink the wine? Yes. As the scriptures often do, the story of Nehemiah from this week's Old Testament reading offers a counterintuitive, countercultural, and subversive piece of advice. Do not yield to the spirit of despair. Don't default to gloom and doom. Instead, choose the radical option of genuine joy. Yes, eat the fat and drink the wine. The story of Nehemiah follows the humiliating defeat of Judah by pagan Babylon. How could God abandon his elect people? Then the following survival of a demoralized remnant, their improbable efforts to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem years later under the Persian king Artaxerxes. When Nehemiah heard the story of his people's distress and reproach, the scriptures say that he wept, mourned, fasted, and prayed for days on end. But he also took action to rebuild the fallen walls of Jerusalem. Once rebuilt, the people gathered in the public square as God's community to hear Ezra read the Law of Moses. Overcome with bittersweet emotions, the people wept. We read in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. Then Nehemiah said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then Nehemiah said to them, Go, 
eat of the fat, drink of the wine. Send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival. Yes, there was a proper time to grieve the devastation of Jerusalem. But there also came a time to move forward and to rejoice. However modest the remnant circumstances compared with former times and expectations. There was then and is today a time to eat the fat and drink the wine. Joy, of course, can be an ambiguous term. Many people link it with happiness and in the, in the enhancement of their circumstances, health, success, faith, wealth, pleasure, fun, or good fortune. In that sense of the word, joy is derivative. It's attached to and dependent upon some external source. Joy of that sort can exude a sense of smugness, entitlement, narcissism, and even self-pity in the absence of the desired objects. Such joy seldom lasts for long, nor is it genuinely fulfilling. In fact, it creates its own set of needs that are rarely satisfied. We all know, for example, privileged people who, spend the, who enjoy the most fortunate of personal circumstances, but who are nevertheless rarely content. They're deeply insecure and always unhappy. Conversely, we know people who possess little, but nevertheless radiate equanimity and gladness. And which is sadder, that a person could be so easily fulfilled by so very little, a new car or a bigger house, or that you readily miss so much, the blast of the ram's horn or the shout from the rooftop with genuine joy. Joy, then, is more elusive, more subtle, and more nuanced than happiness, a predisposition to cheerfulness, or even persevering with some sort of emotional extra effort. Joy is not luck, not good fortune. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis describes joy as, quote, an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasure in the world, end quote. Whereas we can manipulate circumstances to our own advantage to obtain what we think will bring happiness, or expend great efforts in pleasure-seeking, joy is entirely gratuitous. You cannot earn it, buy it, or deserve it. It's a divine gift to receive, rather than a selfish goal to pursue. The opposite of joy is not sadness or sorrow, but anxiety. Jesus encouraged his followers, don't worry about your life. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Consider the joy of the birds in their morning songs, 
or the flowers in their springtime glory, said Jesus. If the Lord of the universe clothes creation with such extravagance, then we can rejoice in his love regardless of our circumstances. Jesus says that we rest in God's love so that my joy may be found in you and that your joy may be complete. John 15:11. In his poem, The Revival, the Welsh poet and physician Henry Vaughan challenges us to open our drowsy eyes to experience what he calls the drops and dews of future bliss. This, suggests Henry Vaughan, is a choice we can make or refuse. Listen to the revival by the Welsh poet and physician Henry Vaughan. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in express joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear. The greatest honor we can give Almighty God, wrote the English mystic Juliana of Norwich, is to live gladly because of the knowledge of God's love. No matter how bleak the tragic course of history, no matter how unnerving our personal circumstances, or how pessimistic the forecasts of cultural historians. With joy, we can expect God's love to blossom, even in the dust and dirt of our lives. And now for further reflection. Contemplate the words of the French Nobel laureate André Guidé, who wrote, joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. What are the differences between joy and happiness? What are some common counterfeits for joy? Can a person choose joy? And finally, for further reflection, see the book by C.S. Lewis, Surprised by Joy. For books this week, I review Joyful Exiles, Life in Christ on the Dangerous Edge of Things by James M. Houston, InterVarsity Press, 2006, 204 pages. Exile has certainly been part of my family's narrative, writes James Houston. After 25 years at Oxford University as a student and then a tutor, Houston uprooted his wife and four teenagers to become the founding principal of Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. That was 35 years ago. 
Now in his mid-80s, with 40 books under his belt and a lifetime of Christian wisdom to share, Houston wrote this book for his son, who asked him to write out the basic convictions he has sought to live out in his Christian life. The six essays are organized into three parts. First, Christian faith as a way of life in a new identity. Second, the priority of personal calling over institutional life. And third, maturing in community, transmitting faith in person. Houston takes his title from a line of Robert Browning's poetry. Our interest is on the dangerous edge of things, wrote Browning. Unfortunately, many Christians and much of Christendom plays it safe. Throughout the six essays, Houston laments the professionalization of the clergy and its scholars at the expense of service, careerism over calling, conventional morality over radical discipleship, technical means that eclipse moral ends, and triumphalism rather than repentance. In his view, quote, the Christian life is truly scandalous to the world, end quote. Believers, by definition, must be countercultural pilgrims, strangers, and exiles who are the nevertheless confident and joyful. We must rediscover a genuinely Christian identity in a pseudo-Christian church and culture. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, quote, our perennial spiritual and psychological task is to look at things familiar until they become unfamiliar again. I especially enjoyed Houston's storytelling about his own life, the people he has known, the poetry he loves, and the author mentors to whom he returns again and again, namely Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard. He also does a fine job of walking the thin line between bold affirmation and critical caution. The Christian life, for example, is hidden, but not privatistic, visionary, but wary of self-delusion, transformative, but patient because change comes ever so slowly, joyful, but fully engaged with the woes of the world. Near the end of his earthly pilgrim, pilgrimage, and after a lifetime of rigorous study among some of our best Christian scholars, Houston affirms that people are more important than ideas, and that Christian faith belongs to the amateurs and the dilettantes who take delight in God rather than to the so-called experts. That's a cause for joy. James M. Houston, Joyful Exiles, Life in Christ on the Dangerous Edge of Things. For film this week, I've reviewed a movie called Look Both Ways, an Australian film from the year 2005. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So wrote Shakespeare in Macbeth. 
Whether he was right is the question that every character in this film struggles to answer. The plot revolves around a train wreck and how the various people related to that wreck and to the newspaper that reported the story. The editor, the reporter, the wife, the train worker. How to interpret that event? Was it a suicide? Negligence? Fate? A murder? The artist Merrill hallucinates about this and many other Freudian fears, which are cleverly represented in animation. She meets the photojournalist Nick, who has his own existential fears, not the least of which is his cancer diagnosis. In the end, their love moves beyond the many limits that life and death impose upon our fragile existence. Look Both Ways, 2005 from Australia. And finally this week, we've posted a poem by Denise Levertov, who lived from 1923 to 1997. The title of her poem is called The Avowal. As swimmers dare to lie face to the sky and waters bears them, as hawks rest upon air and air sustains them, so would I learn to attain free fall and float into the Creator's spirit's deep embrace, knowing no effort earns that all-surrounding grace. The Avowal by Denise Lebertoff. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 21st, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.